Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Listeners, I'm Mark Clovis, and welcome to the third podcast of Arguing History, where renowned historians meet to debate some of the key points in our past. Abraham Lincoln is consistently rated as the greatest president in American history, in no small measure due to his role in leading the nation through national rupture and civil war. So highly is his leadership regarded that some have even gone so far as to claim that, had his position been switched with that of his southern counterpart, Jefferson Davis, the Confederacy would have won its independence. But was presidential leadership the decisive element in determining the outcome of the American Civil War? To discuss the question of the role of presidential leadership in the conflict, we have two of the most distinguished scholars of American history today. The first is William J. Cooper, who is Boyd Professor of History Emeritus at Louisiana State University and the author of several books on American history, including Jefferson Davis, American. We have The War Upon Us, The Onset of the Civil War, November 1860 to April 1861. And most recently, The Lost Founding Father, John Quincy Adams and the Transformation of American Politics, which is forthcoming from Live Right. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. The second is Richard Cowardine, who is Rhodes Professor of American History Emeritus and the former president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford University, who has managed to find the time in addition to that service to write an impressive number of books, including Lincoln, A Life of Purpose and Power, and his newest book, Lincoln's Sense of Humor, which will be published in November by Southern Illinois University Press. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. From across the Atlantic. (laughs) Uh, So, gentlemen. Just how important was presidential leadership to determining the outcome of the Civil War, not just for the Union, but for the Confederacy as well? Would you like me to start on that? Yeah, why don't you start, Uh, Richard? Okay. Um, Well, of course, Lincoln said in a famous letter to Albert Hodges in 1864 that I claim not to have controlled events, but confess rather that events have controlled me. And I I think Lincoln would be the first to say that while leadership mattered, uh, there was quite a lot else that mattered too. Um, I don't think anyone would contest the fact that political systems are important and that uh, the extent of the resources available to a leader, the economic organization of a country, um, the strength and size of the army, and of course the interests of the uh, of foreign powers. So um, Lincoln would have jibbed at the idea that he was the he made the difference to uh, the uh, outcome of the the Civil War, and I I think. I mean, what I, where I would want to start would be to say, what, what must a president do that other centers of power can't achieve in the kind of system that Lincoln and Jefferson Davis operated in? I mean, and it seemed to me that there were sort of four basic things that they, they had to do if they were to do the job well. And I can d- elaborate on these if you want me to. But I think um, a, a leader in that system has to be the person that provides the, the vision, the vision of, of national purpose. Uh, secondly, I think that leader has to have a very clear sense of what the strategic priorities are and to have a, um, a means of, adv- and to develop the means of advancing that strategy. Um, 
I think thirdly, um, you have to have someone who knows how to manage politics and at least to learn how to manage the military. And I think finally, what you need in a, in a leader in those circumstances, in a democratic polity, is someone who can communicate, who can speak, not just clearly, but uh, with an, an uplift of, of the heart uh, as to why the war that's um, becoming increasingly uh, a war of carnage, why that war is worth, worth pursuing. And uh, th those, I think, is what a president must do um, the extent to which um, Lincoln and Davis managed to do this is something that Bill and I can um, can pursue. But I don't know whether you would agree with me with that uh, those sort of set of headings there. Bill. Well, I think I think you're right on the money with that. And uh, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, Jefferson Davis, if you don't mind, Richard, I'll just go on and elaborate a little bit on what I think he did in those particular areas. I think yeah, I do. That, uh, Jefferson Davis is. Uh, War leader, as commander in chief, as president, deserves high marks in, in most of those areas. Uh, I think he did have a clear sense of what he saw the Confederate States of America embodying. To him, it was the American Revolution, second chapter. He spoke about that constantly. He talked about independence. He talked about liberty. Now, for people listening today, for a president heading a slave country to talk about liberty seems not only incongruous, but somehow immoral and even to some people bestial. But for white Southerners in the middle of the 19th century, they couldn't conceive of their liberty apart from their control over black slavery. And so for the Confederates, protecting their liberty meant protecting their right to decide what to do about slavery up, down, left or right. And Davis said that very clearly and very directly. And I think Davis also thought of that as essential. He made, not only did he publish uh, public addresses, messages to Congress in which he elucidated these, but on three different occasions, he traveled far westward in his country, twice to, the, to Mississippi. The third time, he didn't get any farther than Alabama because of, of federal mm -hmm. military advances. Mm. That he understood the importance of doing that and carrying his message to the public. In terms of strategy, he also understood two critical aspects. One, that there was no Confederate nationalism in April of 1861. That Confederate nationalism was being constructed in the midst of the cauldron of war. That loyalty was to states, to localities, not to any Confederate. That there was no loyalty to the Confederacy as there was to the Union in the very beginning. And Davis saw the Confederacy again is coming after the American Revolution where he perceived American nationality, American national loyalty coming through the revolutionary military experience. He said that was happening in the Confederacy. Thus, to hold the Confederacy together, he felt he had to protect all of it. Now, he's been criticized massively for not concentrating military forces in particular areas. He recognized that he would be criticized for that, but he said if he did not defend places like Arkansas, Arkansas would leave the Confederate states. Any place he didn't defend, and he said this specifically to his generals, that we don't only lose territory, we lose people. We lose everything that's connected with what's supposed to be a part of the Confederacy. He understood that. Now, in terms of managing the military, here I think that Davis didn't do nearly so well as Abraham Lincoln did. Uh, Davis 
you would think would have been a terrific commander-in-chief. He had all the kinds of experience. He was a West Point graduate, a regular Army officer, had been a, a military hero in the Mexican War, had been Secretary of War. Uh, but when managing generals, Davis, to put it bluntly, didn't look so much at what a general accomplished, but what he saw as a general's loyalty to his perception of what the Confederacy meant, that a general's loyalty to the Confederacy, a general had to be able to put aside personal ambition, had to put aside human frailty. For example, when one of his major leading generals, Joseph Johnson, got mad because he wasn't ranked high enough, Davis thought that that was pathetic and that Johnson didn't have the right approach to the cause. Whereas I think Lincoln was much more direct and involved in looking at generals and seeing what they would do and didn't do, and he got rid of them, yep. which Davis yep. didn't do. Yes. Well, that's all I'll say on that point for right now. <laughs> it it does though uh that contrast though illustrates how for the respective presidents their tasks were very different and in some ways J- davis's task was the more difficult of the two because in uh lincoln largely inherits a structure now granted that structure is strained by the uh by the massive defection or migration, if you will, of Southerners out of the federal government and out of the uh, federal army. But uh, he is, uh, but Lincoln does have a, an existing Congress, uh, an existing, uh, more ideologically speaking, a sense of nationalism that's been nurtured over two generations at least. Whereas Davis, a, as you point out, Bill, has to not only issue orders and pass budgets and deal with the civil military relations, but he also has to find a sense of nationalism where none has existed prior to November of 1860, if even then. Oh, that too. I, I, in some ways, I think Davis's uh, role was put more like George Washington when the United States began than Lincoln was in the sense of a union being there. And, and how, how completely new the Confederacy was, in Montgomery, when the Confederacy first organized, most of the Civil bureaucrats had come from Washington, and they brought even things like stationery. The Confederacy had nothing, and Davis knew when he was in Montgomery, he was, they were in Montgomery a couple of months before they moved to Richmond, the Confederate government was, that they were starting from absolute scratch, that he had nothing, not even, not only a sense of nationalism, but not even stationery. <laughs> Bill, you know, w- w- one of the reasons why I think your biography of Jefferson Davis is the best is precisely because you hit all those points so powerfully in it, and it, it certainly changed my views of, of Jefferson Davis. But I, I just want to come back to this point about um, what each president inherits. I mean, I, I have never been persuaded by David Potter's proposition that if you switched the leaders, then the outcome could have been different or might have the Confederacy. Well, I don't agree with that either. I mean, it, I, I'm a great fan of David Potter. I think he's one of the great historians of antebellum and Civil War America. Um, but the point was that Lincoln didn't offer the kind of leadership which uh, the Confederacy needed. Um, the Confederacy, Lincoln was was terribly well served, suited to playing the role of a, a leader of an established polity, an established system of government. Um, I mean, of course, he possessed some personal authority, but in, in mobilizing support for the, for the Union, it depended very little on uh, loyalty to him as an individual. He was certainly not a charismatic 
leader in the convention, in, in the true sense of that term. I mean, if, if charismatic authority is to do with the kind of perceived greatness and mission in a great in a leader in a kind of government breakdown, um, that's not Lincoln. Lincoln. Lincoln's power comes from using a routine political system, one which exists, not some, from, from subverting it, uh, and then acting as the defender of the constitutional status quo. Um, what, what serves Lincoln is the resilience of the, the system of Republican constitutional uh, constitutionalism in the Civil War era and the Civil War Union. Uh, Lincoln understood that, and uh, I mean, there's that that time when he was he was told that you know he had to be careful because there were plots to kidnap him or to assassinate him. And he said, you know, I, I don't see what the rebels would get if they they killed me or. Uh, got hold of me. I mean, I'm a I'm a single I'm a single individual, and uh, it wouldn't make uh, the least difference in the progress of the war uh, if they got me. Everything would go on just the same. And that wasn't, in fact, devaluing his role. It was making a statement about the kind of system that Lincoln was leaving. Whereas Jefferson Davis had something much more difficult and challenging to do. I'm not diminishing the challenge that faced Lincoln, but he did have a, a functioning political system, which he was. Um, which, which had come to fruition and to maturity during his own lifetime. Indeed, he was one of those, the very makers of that political system. So uh, what, what Lincoln did bring, of course, was an articulation of what the, uh, of what the Union meant. Uh, and uh, I think from the, the moment that he delivers that speech to Congress in the special session of Congress in July of 1861, he, he's able to elaborate what the union is for, what it's about. It's, but, and for Lincoln, the, you know, the union was not kind of morally neutral political arrangement. It was a union of, of values. And that had been very much at the core of his political rhetoric during the 1850s. It had been why he had set himself against the Kansas-Nebraska Act and against uh, Stephen Douglas, um, why he had declared that the Declaration of Independence demands that all men, black and white, should enjoy the fruits of their own exertions. And I, it, it, for, for Lincoln, the, the challenge was in switching the focus in um, January, February, March of 1861 from the rhetoric of the previous six years where he's been engaged in an ethical assault on the Democratic Party and the doctrine of popular sovereignty to switching it to um, uh, an upholding of the values of the Union. But it's not, it's not something that uh, it, it's, it's hard to do in intellectual terms because his his union that he wants to defend is a union which stands by the the values of the Declaration of Independence uh, and the uh, and the protection of those values by the, the federal constitution. Uh, and so, from Jan July of 1861, when he you know, he. It, He's preparing to give that speech in Congress when everything else is going on. The war is just getting underway. He's, the troops are being called up. The people are plaguing him for office. He's having to put people into military and political posts. At the same time, he's trying to find a way of explaining to the country what this war is about. And it is a war, as he puts it, it's a people's war. It's a war about uh, a, defending a society which operates on democratic values, where you stand by the outcome of an election in a polity, a country, a republic, polity, uh, which is unique to the United States, a mass democracy, which is unique in the history of the world, and you have to defend that because this is a society, uh, a, a union where men and women achieve in society according to their merit, 
and not according to where they are born or the class into which they are born. And Lincoln is able to articulate this over and over through the, through the war uh, in a way that I think galvanizes all of those who are, um, uh, or all of those loyalists, many of whom are not really emancipationists. They aren't fighting the war to end slavery. They are fighting the war for the emancipation of humankind, not for the emancipation of the black race. Um, so I, I think Link, Lincoln's achievement is enormous, but I don't think he, but he was doing so on a platform in a situation which, um, which, uh, which he had learned to uh, deploy very, very effectively, even before he became president. I don't know Jefferson Davis that, became, yes, I don't disagree with it at all. Je- but what, what, one of the most amazing things about Lincoln and Davis is when Davis began to try to articulate what the Confederacy was about, the Declaration of Independence was foremost to him. Yes. yes he said yes, the Declaration yes. of Independence was America's founding document, and it said that if you felt oppressed, that oppressors had to be resisted. And when he made his final speech in Congress in January of 1861, after Mississippi had seceded, he appointed to the Declaration of Independence. Likewise, in his inaugural address as provisional president in Montgomery in February of 1861, he said that, that, that the Confederates were honoring their founding, the founding fathers of the country, they were honoring their ancestors, they were fighting oppression, they were standing for liberty, and they were standing for freedom. And throughout the war, he tried to develop these themes. And for him, the Confederacy had become the last chance for the success of popular Republican government because the Confederates were resisting horrible oppression, an oppression that wanted to destroy Southern society. And so Southerners had to resist. And he saw... How how far... Yes? Sorry, go ahead, Bill. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Interrupt. (laughs) I I was going to ask you the question, how how far did... um, Jefferson Davis uh, feel embarrassed by uh, the cornerstone speech of uh, Alexander Stevens. Um, I don't think I have of... to, to, uh, to be perfectly honest, I ha- have never seen a particular comment he made about it, but I don't think that would have embarrassed him at all. He didn't duck slavery. I mean, the Confederacy yeah. Was, yeah. was to protect slavery. That was in the Confederate Constitution. But to him, again, liberty and slavery were intertwined. White liberty and black yeah. slavery could not be broken. And so he saw the, the Republican Party as an attempt. He didn't see the Republican Party, Lincoln's Party, as so moral, but it wanted power. It wanted a power that could hurt his people, hurt yeah. their society, hurt their economy, endanger them. Because what yeah. Southerners could not perceive, conceive of how a society with so many African Americans, so many of a race that they felt was inferior, well, as did most white Northerners and white Englishmen at the same time felt they were inferior, how they could survive unless this race was in somehow a guaranteed inferior position. And this this meant you had to protect the society you had. And, for example, Davis, when he was elected uh, president of the Confederacy and no, no provisional anymore in November of 1861, he had his inauguration in February of 62 in Richmond, he spoke at the statue of George Washington, which still stands on the Capitol grounds in Richmond. He was consciously trying to connect himself with Washington, not that he thought he was of Washington's statue, but that, that he and Washington were involved in the same great task, the same great task. And his messages to Congress, the same thing. And you talked, uh, you know, you get to the end, 
he's even willing to jettison slavery to save what he thinks is a, is a Confederate experiment, which is to save liberty from oppression. So I think he spoke the same language that Lincoln did. They just came at it from a very, very different perspective. I, I was thinking... Uh, sorry, Richard, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, I was thinking this, this gets to what's ultimately the, the, the counterfactual nature of the question, because we, we ultimately don't know how Davis would have functioned had he inherited the the pre-existing conditions that Lincoln did. We don't know how Lincoln would have responded had he faced Davis's task of having to you know re- resituate himself as a second uh, gener- uh, founding father 2.0, if you will. So it, it, so that that but it definitely shows how that leadership it seems both of you are, are pointing out is very important in terms of defining that that purpose of the war defining the meaning of it especially for uh, a, a population on both sides for whom this well, challenge think, is unprecedented you know i think i think lincoln d- did more than richard has been very uh, eloquent in describing uh, lincoln's rhetorical uh, enunciation of values and his his ability to describe values but Lincoln also had an absolute iron will to see this thing through. Yep. And on many yeah, occasions, yeah. it could have been very easy for some other leader in the North to say, look, this is enough. Too many people have been killed. We're going to make some kind of arrangement, and hopefully over time, things will work out. Uh, that Lincoln would never do that was one I, of the I reasons that the, 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 the Confederacy lost. I don't think if Lincoln had been president, the Confederacy made one bit of difference. If the if the union <laughs> yeah. had a man in yeah. charge who was had the iron will Lincoln, to, for example, yeah. Davis, Davis had the same iron will Lincoln did. He would not conceive of having any kind of end of the war that did not result in Confederate independence. He went to the bitter yeah. end on that. Both men yeah. were absolutely determined to see the thing through. And so, if Lincoln had right. been in the Confederacy, Lincoln would have gone down just like Davis did. After all, yeah. <laughs> the Union I'm, Army, I'm, I'm, as, as one Confederate general said. In the aftermath of the Civil War, all the talk about why the Confederates lost the battle at Gettysburg. Was it just General's fault or that General's fault? And General George Pickett, the leader of the famous charge, said he always thought the Federals had a good bit to do with why the Confederates lost the battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> I, I think the, the Federal Union had a good deal to do with why the Confederates lost the Civil War. I mean, Davis could yeah. not defend all of his territory. He didn't have the people. He didn't have the wherewithal. Now, one thing, of course, the Confederates, Davis himself, too, thought the leadership thought what happened when the war began is the same thing that happened in the Revolution. What saved the Americans in the Revolution was France. If France had not come to America's aid in the Revolution, uh, the chances of America succeeding against Great Britain would have been slim to none. They expected the Europeans to intervene. And when Britain didn't intervene, it was a great blow to the Confederates. They had not anticipated that Britain would intervene. They now, now what culpability really yeah. British to come yeah. in. Just can like I just break in there, Bill, and ask, and ask you? In, in the American Revolution. And so I, yeah. Can I, can I just break in there? Lincoln had been, I agree with, with Richard about David Potter's greatness as a historian, but yeah. you could, I don't yeah. care who you could have put in as president of the Confederacy, <laughs> it wouldn't have made a difference. It wouldn't have a difference. Uh, Bill, can I just come in on, on that point about um, kind of the place of the foreign powers? Um, I mean, my, my my admiration for, for Lincoln's uh, strategic discernment is second to none. Um, and there are a number of elements in that. I mean, he, the way in which he, 
He maximized support, above all, by holding on to the border slave states and by reaching out to political opponents, um, uh, by adopting a military plan that would exploit the, the limitations of the Confederates, um, mobilizing the, the resources of the Union, and indeed um, securing uh, uh, international, if not international support, or at least ensuring non-intervention. And when Lincoln... Lincoln had the, uh, the the delicate task in late 1861, in the case of the Trent Affair, you recall, where the oh, yes. um, the, uh, the Captain Wilkes seizes a British mail packet, and it's, the packet is carrying the, these uh, Confederate commissioners, Mason and Slidell, um, to to Europe, and uh, uh, of course he's um, he's Wilkes is in breach of the uh, uh, of international law, but it leads to a huge jingoistic uh, 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 support in the, in the North and a claim by the British that these must be released. And it, 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 there were those who said it was, that war was imminent. And, uh, of course, Lincoln said, Lincoln said famously, well, no, one, one war at a time. <laughs> and it was a wise position. He, Lincoln knew that in civil wars there's always the possibility, indeed the probability of foreign intervention. And what Lincoln and of course William Seward, his Secretary of State, were determined to do was to prevent uh, any kind of intervention. Um, they were outraged when the British in fact offered belligerent status to the Confederacy, although in fact Britain was simply doing that under the terms of international, international law. Um, my, my question really is, do you think I, I, I do admire your defense of of Davis, and I'm very broadly persuaded by it, but I have never sat comfortably with uh, Davis's position on King Cotton and the emphasis on the power of Cotton to bring the British oh, they, into they, the they, war they, on the, they, on the they, Confederate they, side. They, they were naive, Richard. They were naive. Yeah. The difficulty was in the decade of the 1850s was the most prosperous decade in the, in the previous generation and a half. Yep. The Confederate, the, the, the price of cotton remained stable while production doubled. The, the southern states were enormously productive. Wealth was increasing mightily, and they believed absolutely that nobody could do without cotton. It was a very short-sighted belief, and they thought Britain would intervene to protect the source of cotton. No, it was, it was very short-sighted and very naive, but they believed that. Yeah. I, I, and, and how far... How far was that Davis's own reading of events, and how far was it um, a, a sort of collective perception? I think it was collective. I think yeah. it was collective. Yeah. Davis did collective. expect a long, arduous war, which most Southerners didn't. They thought it would be over shortly. I mean, when he first wanted uh, enlistments, or enlistments to the first enlistments to go for three years or for, to uh, go for the duration of the war, the Congress wanted to give him six months. They ended up with a year. And because most Southerners didn't think it would last very long at all. They thought there would be one battle, and the Yankees would lose, and that would be it. And yeah, Davis yeah. never believed that. He had been Secretary of War. He'd been in the Senate. He knew how strong the North was, how powerful it was. He didn't know Lincoln. Uh, but he yeah, thought yeah. that whoever was in charge in the North, that they had the wherewithal to go for a long, long, long way. Yeah. I, 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 coming back to your point about Lincoln's iron will, uh, thank you, by the way, for that. But on, on Lincoln's iron will, um, and the you know, this counterfactualism market you're asking about, you know, should what, what if we switch presidents? Um, I agree with Bill that putting Lincoln in the in the Confederacy would have made not a 
jot of difference to the outcome. I think putting Jefferson Davis in charge of the Union, however, uh, would have um, would have weakened the, the 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 Union in all sorts of ways. N- not not least, I think, because um, Lincoln's party political skill and his working in a in a system of two-party politics in a way that Davis and those of the Deep South had not over a generation uh, had kept Lincoln. Uh, well honed in the arts of um, of, of, of political management, uh, and those were skills which I think served him really well during during the conflict. He he managed to hold together um, not just a, a Republican Party which uh, spanned the uh, radical abolitionists and radical anti-slavery rights on the one hand, right through to rather more conservative Unionists on the other, but he also kept within the uh, the Union coalition conservative Democrats. Um, not, not of course, copperheads, but or peace Democrats, but uh, but uh, de- war Democrats uh, who saw that this was a um, the only means of of uh, sustaining the union was by a political coalition, which Lincoln was um, generous in his in, in in the way in which he he he, uh, he developed it. Um, there were those who said to him. Um, you know, early on in the, early on in the war, Lincoln, Lincoln, very before, just before the war starts, Lincoln is dismissing hundreds of Buchanan appoint, appointees to to posts. But once the war begins, Lincoln brings into the administration, he brings into government, he brings into the army, of course, uh, political appointees who are Democrats, not just Republicans, and builds a coalition for the war. Um, and. Uh, with that sort of sensitivity to political opinion that had marked his course through, uh, particularly through the 1850s, he knows when and how to move the Union from the Union, defending the Union as it was, to moving to the Union as it now is, or the new Union that is built on a I won't say a colorblind vision of liberty, but certainly a vision of liberty which embraces black as well as white. And well, now I won't. I won't. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. No, I don't disagree with the last thing you said. I disagree with the earlier things you said. I think David right, was, Davis yeah. was a very astute politician. No, in his state, the Whig Party was not as strong as it was in some other southern states. And after the crisis, after the compromise of 1850, and Davis's wing of the Democratic Party finally uh, prevailed in Mississippi, he was pretty much without a serious other party in Mississippi, though he had serious opponents within his own Democratic Party. Yet he'd been in Congress for a long time. He knew exactly how politics worked. And when he became president of the Confederacy, he was not a person who looked only for secessionists. For example, in 1861, when he was appointing all these people to office, as Richard said Lincoln was doing, Davis was doing the same thing, the governor of Tennessee wrote him a letter and said, look, you haven't put enough Whigs in office. Davis wrote back and said, gosh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that because we engaged in such a Herculean task, and I hadn't thought about previous political affiliation, but I will get to it and, and get to it right now. And in terms of opposition, Davis did have opponents, and they screamed and they howled. But the striking thing is, if you look at it carefully, it's almost an inverse correlation between how loud they screamed and what they accomplished. <laughs> you look at the state of Georgia, where I live now, that was yeah. where the biggest uh, group of Lincoln, yeah. I mean, Davis opponents lived. Yeah. Uh, Vice President yeah. Stevens, Secretary of State Toombs, the Governor Joseph Brown, yeah. and yet yes. Davis, they could never get them. 
legislation to turn against Davis, they couldn't do anything. Davis got from the Confederate Congress what he wanted most of the time, even conscription before Lincoln did. He even got the Confederate Congress to go for emancipation, and this was late 1865 to be sure, but still that was utterly wrenching. And one thing I think you need to consider about Lincoln and Davis and what they could manage politically, Lincoln never had to deal with a foreign army in Iowa, in southern Illinois, yeah. in southern Indiana, which put yeah. enormous yeah. pressure yeah. on the southern politics. David, Lincoln never had to deal with Confederate soldiers all across southern Indiana, southern Ohio, southern uh, Illinois. I think that would have made a big difference in terms of the kind of Democratic support he had. Yes, yes. I, 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 well, I, I certainly stand corrected on your, uh, on your depiction of uh, Davis as someone who is actually, uh, is, is, I won't say a party manager, but certainly understands the, uh, the, the, the needs of political balance and the political embrace. But he never, uh, he never went, it, even though we tried to end slavery, they never, they never, he never went where Lincoln went on race. Never. No, no, no. It, no. If I may pivot our conversation a bit, I, I want to get to something that uh, both of you discussed briefly at, at the start of uh, the podcast, and that is the issue of their relations and their management of the uh, of their military leadership. Because here, and this is something that is one of the most frequently discussed topics uh, about the war, which is Lincoln's relationship with his generals and uh, Davis and his relationship with uh, Robert E. Lee, Albert Sidney Johnson, Joseph E. Johnston, as, as, as you as you've already mentioned, Bill. Uh, I was wondering if you could if you could speak about that. What, what, what each man what each man brought to that uh, role and how they managed that aspect of the job as president, which which of course you know had never really mattered uh, as much in peacetime as it, it certainly did during this period. Well, I'll begin briefly, and then you can you can take over, Bill. I I, mean, I, I think it was a huge learning curve for, for Lincoln. Um, the one thing that he did not have when he became president was really any military experience to speak of. Um, we know that he, of course, he fought in the, or rather, he served in the the Black Hawk War, and he was captain of his company. Um, but the only, as he put it himself, the only blood he ever he ever saw a shed was at the uh it was at the uh, his blood which was shed by uh, being bitten by the mosquitoes <laughs> um so he's 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 not naive but he is inexperienced and i think therefore he he lacks davis's self-confidence but what he did do was to apply himself uh as commander-in-chief uh with just the kind of earnestness and industry that he brought to uh, other matters earlier in his career, just the way in which, when as a younger man, you know, he applied himself to learning the books of, to reading the books of Euclid, Euclid and learning logic, learning, learning, learning the law, learning surveying, and he what he set about learning about generalship, and I think what he did then do was what he achieved was to outrun his generals in in strategic thought in the in the main. I mean, he was operating on first principles rather than. Uh, uh, rather than uh, the West Point textbooks, although I mean, again it has to be said at West Point they were mostly learning engineering and not how to how to fight battles in the Civil War. Um, and he did see very early on that what the Union had was an advantage in numbers. And if you have an advantage in numbers, that what you should not do is to concentrate them in a single force, but to um, really to uh, uh, 
to assault the enemy at a number of different points at the same time, which of course is quite the opposite of what McClellan was planning and what he eventually did in his uh, Peninsula campaign and march on on, on Richmond. Um, Lincoln Lincoln six months before that was telling uh, I think Don Carlos Buell that you know he, that, that we have the greater numbers and. Uh, so therefore, the best way of, of exploiting the, the, that superiority was by menacing the enemy uh, with superior force at different points. And at the same time, so the concentration was in time and, and not in place. And, and, and he also saw that, um, that uh, simply uh, taking places, taking, getting hold of territory in a civil war was not enough, um, that you had really to track and destroy uh, Confederate armies, and um, that that was the key to victory. But Lincoln, I think, didn't have uh, either the the self confidence initially, or possibly even the the personnel, the military personnel, um, to get the right person in place. He stuck with uh, he stuck with McClellan, um, and uh, now you can say that actually, as Mark Grimsley has in a in a recent interesting article that. McClellan didn't trust Lincoln, but then Lincoln didn't trust McClellan, and it worked both ways, and you can't simply exculpate one and, and blame the other. But the, the fact was Link, Lincoln did uh, accept um, McClellan's plan uh, He uh, against, I think, his own better judgment. But over time, uh, came to see that um, his way of winning the war was the right one, and that was why he threw his support um, so manifestly behind behind Grant, and why Grant was then elevated to uh, the highest position that's been seen in the American Army since since Washington. Um, so th- 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 that seems to me to be the, the 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 background to to Lincoln's relationship with with his generals. Um, there's a lot of trial and error going on, and I don't think we should be surprised at that, uh, not just because the President of the Union was, had not been a soldier, because I think whoever had been President of the Union uh, would have been involved in trial and error. Um, pl- planning good, good plans only emerge through experience. Um, what I think that what I think happened during the course of the war was that sort of experimentation earlier on um, leads eventually to the Union putting in place something approximating to uh, a military command structure that if it isn't absolutely modern, is a pre- precursor of something that's modern with Henry Halleck as the, as the chief of staff who's liaising between uh, Lincoln, uh, president, commander-in-chief, and, and then Grant as, as general-in-chief. Um, the, 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 the other footnote to, to all of this is to say that, of course, Lincoln was also, in, when, he was, when he was making his appointment of commanders of generals in the field, was wanting to balance the, uh, going back to my point about the politics of war, wanting to ensure that there were both Democrats and uh, Republicans commanding uh, the forces, that you have your John McClellan's, McClellan's as well as your, uh, as well as your Carl Schurz's uh, in the field, and you have your uh, ethnic um, Americans represented as well as your uh, as, as well as your your native or more Native Americans, uh, I don't know whether that does that does that, does that, does that uh, chime with what you think, Bill? Well, yeah, I don't have uh, any any quarrels with what what you're saying. Uh, Davis started out with a great deal of confidence. In fact, he never lost his confidence that he was he knew what to do about the army. He thought that he would have been successful as an army commander. He certainly thought he could be commander in chief. 
And as I said early on, I won't be, you know, just go through that ground again. I think he understood his strategic position. I think he understood the weakness of the forces he could employ. He worried about having to defend such an extended line. After all, from the east coast of, say, Virginia, North Carolina, to the western border of Arkansas, to the center of Texas, is a thousand miles. He had to cover all of that, and he knew that his uh, resources were going to be stretched very thin. And what he kept telling his generals to do was to, to watch very carefully and to find a place where they could isolate and strike a portion of the Union Army. For example, in uh, 1862, when he had put Albert Johnston, the man he thought was the very best soldier the Confederacy had, mm. in command of an enormous geographic area stretching from the Appalachian Mountains to the Trans-Mississippi. Uh, Johnston was in Kentucky. He got maneuvered out of Kentucky down in the central Tennessee. And Davis said, look, pick out one part of, the con- of this Union force and attack it, which is what Johnston did at the Battle of Shiloh when he attacked Grant there. Grant didn't have all the Union army out in that area by any stretch of the imagination. So Davis understood that. And Davis also understood that the generals he put in place had enormous responsibility. And he was very careful, he thought, in terms of putting generals in place. But once he put them in place, he gave them enormous leeway. Mm. Davis is always accused or criticized of being a micromanager. And he did micromanage the War Department or the, the, uh, the decisions in Richmond. Goodness gracious, across his desk, and he would note things like some junior officer wanting a transfer from Virginia to Louisiana <laughs> or where a certain number of cannons should go. He did that, and when uh, messages would leave Richmond signed by the Secretary of War, the Adjutant Inspector General, who was the highest-ranking officer of the Confederate Army, (coughs) all decisions Davis had made, even though the Secretary's or the General's name might be on it. Mm. But once Mm. he put a general in place, he didn't tell him what to do. He might make suggestions. Early on, for example, uh, before the first Battle of Manassas of Bull Run, Joseph E. Johnston was in command out at Harper's Ferry. And uh, Davis sent him a message. Well, Robert Lee actually signed the message, but he was Davis's military advisor. That the president says you should do so and so, provided you think it best. Everything Davis always said was provided you think it best. He never dictated to a general in the field what to do. He never did that. No micromanagement there at all. In fact, he would have done better micromanaging. Now he had one general that didn't need anything. He had Robert E. Lee, but he only had one Robert E. Lee. He had no others. <laughs> And the way he handled these others, as I've said before, was very strange And, and a, for a man who was trained like he was. He didn't look so much at what they did as what he believed their commitment was. And I think this is quite clear in his dealings with three people, Joseph Johnston, Pierre Beauregard, and Braxton Bragg. I mentioned Johnston earlier. Uh, Johnston mm-hmm. was piqued when he wasn't given the first rank in the Confederate Army. He wrote a very ugly letter to the president. Put it in a drawer, like you're supposed to write ugly letters, you put it in a drawer for a while and let the cool off, right? Well, he left it in the drawer for a day, took it out and mailed it anyway. (laughs) And Davis was incensed. I mean, this was a man who was telling Davis, look, my rank is more important than the cause. Or General Beauregard, after First Manassas, Beauregard wrote a report of the battle in which he kept saying, we would have captured Washington except nobody would listen to me. My views weren't heard. Again, Davis was taken aback. This was not a, this was not the cause. This was one man. Contrast Bragg. 
Bragg was in the backwater at Pensacola. Uh, Bragg trained troops that went to Virginia. He trained troops that went up to Albert Johnston. He never complained. He never complained a bit. Davis looked Mm. upon him as a loyal Confederate, not loyal to Davis so much, but a loyal Confederate who put personal desires and personal ambitions secondary. And the way he dealt with this was, was astonishing. Take 1862. The Confederates invaded Kentucky. Uh, Braxton Bragg was a commanding general. He had two other forces with him. One was commanded by General Edmund Kirby Smith, who he ranked, but Davis had never said specifically that uh, Kirby Smith had to abide by Bragg's orders. They commanded different armies, though they were on the same campaign. Davis rather said, "You both, both of you men are loyal Confederates and patriots. I don't have to worry about how you're going to get along. We ain't get along at all." <laughs> on top of that, Bragg had a, a subaltern in his in his uh, army, a man who had been a former Episcopal bishop of Louisiana. Yeah. Davis had known him yeah. at West Point, but Leonidas yeah. Polk had gotten in the in the clergy right after he left West Point. Davis made him a general. And he was in Kentucky, and the Kentucky campaign ended in a fiasco. We don't need to talk about that this morning. But what is interesting (laughs) is after it was over, each of these three generals, Polk, Bragg, and Kirby Smith, blamed the other two for what went wrong. Davis invited them all to Richmond. They all told Davis, if if I'd been in charge, everything had been fine. These other two so-and-sos, they ruined us. What did Davis do? He promoted two of them and left Bragg in command. Now, Lincoln would never have done that. Lincoln no, would never no, have done that. No, no never no, have done no. that. It, 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 if no. I may, did uh, Davis ever face the sort of overt political challenge that McClellan posed to Lincoln? After all, McClellan ends up becoming the Democratic nominee in 1864. And while this Confederacy never had an election like that, was there ever a general who, say, openly uh, uh, corresponded? Oh, yes. Well, first let me say they didn't have an election because Davis had been elected in 61 for a six-year term. That's why there was no election. He, If the Confederacy had succeeded or if things had gone on, there would have been another election in 67. But, yes, Joseph Johnston was aligned with and both Johnson and Beauregard were aligned with anti-Davis elements in the Confederate Congress. And yet Davis, you know, he kept putting them in places of, of command. And he had to deal with Johnston. You talk about duplicity, or not, not duplicity, lack of trust. Johnston never trusted Davis after that first experience. Davis put him in charge of what he called the Department of the West over Bragg. He told him to go to Bragg's army and relieve Bragg if that needed to happen. He came, wrote back and told Davis, well, things seem fine. Well, Davis got all these letters from other generals in the army saying things aren't fine. So Davis ordered uh, Johnston to relieve Bragg and send Bragg to Richmond. Johnston said he couldn't do that because Bragg's wife was sick. And uh, so he didn't do it. And Johnston kept writing letters to his wife and telling his wife that the president has put me in places just to see that I'll fail. <laughs> so he would take no chances, whatever. He would do nothing. And, and Davis there, had to deal there, with this man. Did, did Davis face, I'm just carrying on with Mark's point, did, uh, there may not have been an election in the offing, but did Davis face um, criticism um, from generals on ideological um, grounds, was a political program grounds? I don't think very much, uh, Richard. Not that, not that I have come across. Uh, yeah, when yeah. the first... Uh, because clearly that... Go ahead. So, uh, so I say when the, fir- when the first um, 
uh, suggestions about slave soldiers came from uh, within the Army of Tennessee with yeah. general officers of, who weren't in command down to the division level. Uh, you could yeah. say that was ideological, but that wasn't at the very yeah. top. No, I don't think was there was Patrick, really any uh, ideological. Yeah. No, no, no. Whereas, of course, the um, the challenge that Lincoln had was uh, in dealing with uh, just with oh, yes. uh, McClellan as a as a as a slow coach, um, as a cautious general, but whose caution uh, probably derived from an ideological position too of yes, wanting no. to uh, to pursue the, the the war at such a pace that uh, there would be some kind of coming together again, that there would not be an assault on southern institutions, that slavery would not become emancipation would not become a uh, a, a part of the war. Program, and uh, that was that was that was a huge challenge for Lincoln, wasn't it? Well, it was. Just, uh, no. have to, I don't know. I don't think. They, yeah. No, I don't think Davis faced that. Kind. I mean, for the Confederates, you know, this was an existential situation. I mean, the, the survival yes. was was there. Yeah. Once you get to eighteen sixty yeah. sixty-three, you know, so they didn't really face that. But he, you know, what they would do, for example, in uh, in late February, in late November of eighteen sixty-four, when he had made John Bell Hood command of the Army of Tennessee, which was his main army in his Western Theater after he fired Joseph Johnston. He put Beauregard in overall command of Hood out there. And what Beauregard do? Didn't do anything. I think that that's what these generals would do. They just wouldn't do anything. They wasn't yeah. ideological. Yeah. They may have yeah. felt the yeah. war was over. I can't answer that, but they didn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually took from uh, when I when I read your book. I, there's a point that that you uh, were making there. It wasn't uh, overly explicit, but it also seemed that there was a, a lack of vision of these generals beyond, say, just the command of an army. They they couldn't think in terms of a theater. They couldn't think in terms of overall purpose. They were concerned with you know the, leading the men from the front and not necessarily the the, the grand strategic vision. They they didn't seem to to function very well in that respect. And, and my question is, did Davis have that same Grand strategic grasp that Lincoln had, because that that sort of grasp is really rare. The the idea. Of- oh, I think Davis did understand what he, as I said before, he did understand that he had to defend everything he could. He did understand that he didn't have the the, the military strength, the economic might to carry the war to the enemy, which he really wanted to do. But he also understood that his best general was right there in Virginia. And he supported Lee as best he could. That doesn't mean he didn't do in the West. He just didn't have anybody out there in the West that would perform for him. These people, I don't think strategic vision had anything to do with Joseph Johnston's reluctance to do anything. I think anything to do with John Bell's hood, headstrong attacks. I mean, they just were men who were put in place, and I think their personalities dominated what they did. Now, people have could have criticized Lee for not being outside of Virginia. Well, one has to remember two things. One, Lee was not made general-in-chief of the Confederate Armies until the winter of 1865. It was a little bit late to do very much. Second thing to remember is that throughout the war, from the time he was Davis's military advisor in 1861, all the way through, he, Davis consulted Lee on almost every major decision he made in the West. Mm-hmm. He even at one point was thinking about sending Lee to command in the West, and Lee said, of course, I'm a professional soldier, I'll go. He says, but i got a question to ask you. I mean, it wasn't put this quite this simply. He said, who you could put in my place right here? <laughs> uh, David said, yeah, yeah, who I'm going to put in your place right here? So he left Lee where he was. And in 1863, he had a terrible 
difficult strategic decision to make in the middle of 1863. Uh, Vicksburg, which is this major citadel in the west, keeping the Mississippi River open, the way to the Trans-Mississippi, which still provided the Confederates a great uh, uh, amount of material, food, etc., was under Grant was attacking, so things were becoming desperate out there. Well, there were those who, who urged Davis to send elements from Lee's army to the west to help defend Vicksburg. And Lee went to Richmond and he said, look, Mr. President, what I think you ought to do is to support me and let me attack in Pennsylvania, go across the border in Pennsylvania, see what I can accomplish. He said, I can do up there. So Davis had to decide what to do. And Davis said he finally decided he would support Lee. Now, to me, he made a lot of sense. Lee was his most proven general. Lee had just won a major victory at Chancellorsville. On top of that, suppose Lee did dispatch a corps to the West. What would happen to it? How would it be used? Both Lee and Davis had very serious doubts about how effective Joseph Johnston would be with it. They both knew Johnston. Well, I think Davis's great failing as a commander-in-chief was not his strategic vision, but the way he handled his senior generals. He was, I think... I think there were two parts to that. One, he was convinced from his own military background and also his service in the Mexican War, where he served with Zachary Taylor, who was his first father-in-law and a fast friend. And Taylor grumbled about his the control from Washington, what told him what he could and couldn't do. That Davis felt he should keep hands off. The second thing was, I think Davis became obsessed with the Confederate system of military rank. The Confederacy had a rank of full general, which the Union never had. The highest rank in the Union Army was major general until Grant was made lieutenant general by Lincoln in the winter of 1864 and became general-in-chief. There were scores of major generals in the Union Army. Some ranked others with seniority, so there some outranked others. But there were scores of major generals. The Confederacy had only five full generals to start with. There were only a handful of lieutenant generals. Then you get down to major generals. Davis... I think was obsessed with having a man at that top rank in command of armies and he wouldn't look down. And so he would say, my gosh, okay, people are complaining about Bragg. His army is a viper's nest. His generals don't like him. He doesn't like his generals. Well, why doesn't Davis get rid of Bragg? Well, who does he put in his place? Joseph Johnston? No. Beauregard? No. Does he look down in the army to major generals? and push somebody up and say, okay, here's your chance. He doesn't do that. I think the rank thing was a real weakness to anyone. I really believe that. I can't prove it, but I really believe it. Right. Um, so one last, one last point I want to address in this, and this, is some, this uh, draws upon something that uh, both of you had raised earlier, which is this notion of the leadership they provided in the roles they played in terms of defining the war. And we've already alluded to the question of the role of, of African-American slaves and, and, and emancipated uh, soldiers in it. And, and this gets to a point that you make in, in your biography, uh, Richard, which is that uh, about just how vital Lincoln was in terms of redefining the purpose of the war. And he famously does this uh, over the course of it. But it really gets to this issue of, of uh, if, if presidential leadership was not the key to uh, the, winning the war, just how important presidential leadership could be. And conversely, how the Confederacy it, you know, ultimately makes this very dramatic choice between uh, their, their uh, in, independence and, and maintaining slavery, and they choose independence. 
the the degree to which that you know that was driven also as you as you've already pointed out, Bill, by Davis himself. And I wonder if you could speak to that how, how they those roles played as president in terms of not just shaping the purpose of the war, but also in effect shaping their idea for what African Americans were going to be in the uh, by after the war. Yeah, you want me to start, um, Richard? Well, yeah, you go ahead. Well, I'll start, not let Richard start, only because what Lincoln did is so well-known, what Davis did is less well-known. Davis, of course, started off the war defending slavery absolutely. It was constitutional, it was moral, it was right. The Confederacy fought for it. As late as December of 1864, in his message to Congress, he downplayed the need to have any talk about emancipation from military service. He did advocate, though, that the Confederate government be allowed to buy slaves, uh, and use them in fortifications, road building, etc., rather than rent slaves or impress slaves from private owners. But then a couple of months thereafter, he came back to Congress and he talked about the need for slave soldiers. Now, he'd also done that diplomatically. He sent a diplomatic mission abroad in the middle of 64-65, offering emancipation if either Britain or France would intervene, and of course that was too little too late. But the Confederate Congress did pass an emancipation law, which is something the United States Congress didn't do. I mean, Lincoln put black soldiers in the Union Army under his his authority as commander-in-chief. The Confederate Congress did pass such a law, though it stipulated that uh, masters had to agree to the slaves coming in. But what's interesting to me about Davis's proposal is what he saw in the aftermath. He said to the governor of Virginia, now, of course, if these men come in and they fight armedly, they're going to have to be emancipated. Then he said, David said, they would have the right to go back to their homes and live there where they had lived when they came into the army. So this means that the post-war Confederate states, had there been such an item, would have had on a piece of land owned by a white man, slaves this man owned, former slaves he had owned that were now emancipated because of service in the military. That, that's a, an incredible invasion of private property in terms of telling the landowner who's got to be on his property. Now, of course, whether slaves would have ever fought for the Confederacy that came so late, they tried to put a couple of battalions together. One was put together in Richmond, but the end came. So one can't say whether or not they are that, that this effort would have uh, come come to any fruition if, if the war had continued for very much longer. Uh, but not only did Davis push that, I mean, Lee came to that, many others came to that. Now, the opposition was pretty stiff. It only passed in the Confederate Senate because the Virginia legislature instructed Confederate, the Virginia senators to vote for it. One North Carolina senator even opposed it because he said it violated the Dred Scott decision, which was in 1857. <laughs> by the United States Supreme Court, which didn't have much effect in the Confederate States in 1865, though this man evidently felt that it should have. Uh, so I think Davis did see, of course, at the time he was desperate and how fully he had thought through this, but he had put forth a blueprint for a very different kind of society. Now, nothing about equality now. Don't get me wrong. Nothing about equality. We're not talking about even Lincoln's... Uh, getting past racial divisions, much less any kind of modern civil rights. No, but it would have been a very different kind of society. Okay, Richard. 
<laughs> okay, thanks, Bill. Yeah, uh, as you say, the, the, the Lincoln story is is uh, uh, better known, um, um, maybe more celebrated. Um, it still raises its own questions as to uh, how much of a shift there was within Lincoln himself, as opposed to the purpose of the union that he articulated. Um, you can, I think, make a case for Lincoln, well, Lincoln himself. Uh, always believing that slavery was wrong, um, but n n never, I think, as a as a pre-presidential politician speaking forcibly in favour of any kind of political rights, serious political rights for for blacks. And I think what the war does uh, for Lincoln. Let's look at Lincoln personally, and then maybe look a little more widely. I think for Lincoln, what the war does. Um, he keeps his options open uh, in Ju July of 1861 when he's uh, speaking to whether the relationship between the states and the federal government will be, uh, the southern states and the federal government will remain the same after the war as, as, it, as before. He says it will probably be the case. He doesn't, his, 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 his quintessential Lincoln caution there, keeping, keeping options open. But it, I think it's only in, it's only really in uh, 1862 that Lincoln comes to the view that he can emancipate as commander-in-chief. However, as someone who has been thinking about um, the place of slavery in the Union and the nature of the Union the whole of his life, um, Lincoln, there's a continuity in Lincoln's thought through the war. Um, the Union that Lincoln wants to save in 1861 is no different from the Union that he uh, presides over at the time that he is writing his second inaugural and indeed enjoying the uh, the few days of peace that he experiences or of, of almost peace that he experiences uh, in April of 1865. Uh, he believes that the American Union is a, 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 a union which embraces within the, de the Declaration of Independence both black and white. Um, that there is the freedom to pursue your um, uh, your economic goals, your, to enjoy the fruit of your own labor, is something that Lincoln stands by throughout his life. And when he tells um, Horace Greeley in August of 1862 that, um, you know, he would, uh, he would, in order to save the Union, he would, he would, he would either, he could emancipate the slaves, or if it, to save the Union, he would actually continue with slavery, that's what he would do. The fact is that the Union that he wants to save is an anti-slavery Union. It's a Union which is dedicated to an ultimate emancipation. So I think Lincoln's own ideas about emancipation and slavery don't fundamentally change during the war, nor indeed his attachment to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. What changes is, of course, the context within which you can speak about that. And what changes the, the situation primarily is the summer of 1862, the failure of the Peninsula Campaign, and their recognition that in order to win the war, this has to be a hard war, a hard war which makes an assault on southern civilians, uh, and in particular on removing from the well-being or for the, uh, from within the labor force of the, of the Confederacy, the slave population, and making an assault on the southern infrastructure, the economic infrastructure. Um, presented in those hard, utilitarian, pragmatic terms, it, it becomes persuasive. But it has also to be presented in moral terms. For Lincoln, it, ha it is a moral case as well as a, an economic and a pragmatic case. 
And hence, uh, when Lincoln tells the cabinet in September 1862 that he is now minded to issue his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, he says he has made a promise to his maker. Uh, and this astonishes the, uh, the, the cabinet who had never heard Lincoln talk about God in this way before. Uh, but he's made a promise to his maker that if there is to be um, a, 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 an outcome to the Battle of Antietam, which is advantageous to the Union, he will want to uh, issue his preliminary emancipation proclamation. And uh, that weaving together of providentialism with emancipation is then consistent within Lincoln's thinking and speaking from uh, from 1863 through from early 1863 through to uh, the end the end of the war it's there of course in a non in a secular form in the Gettysburg address but it's there in a profoundly sermonic form uh, ultimately in a number of uh, contexts but particularly of course in the in the great second inaugural address uh, for, for, for Lincoln uh, the American Union is dedicated to the proposition that all men are equal, but it is also a, a union which operates under providence. And before the war, Lincoln saw providence as something remote. Um, he was in, in his younger life, he was a deist. Um, certainly, in his pre-presidential years, he was he was he was certainly not an evangelical Christian. Um, but he saw he saw providence at work in the in the universe. But during the war, that remote providence becomes something much more interventionist and part of human history, and that's the providence that he refers to in the second inaugural when he uh, makes uh, that that, that uh, explanation of why both North and South are suffering, um, the, the carnage, the losses, the horror, horrible bloodshed, why they're suffering by the sword, they're doing so because of the sin of, of slavery. And that's the, that's, uh, so my, my argument is twofold. One is that Lincoln, in terms of his understanding of what the Union is about, does not change, but in terms of how it applies to, specifically to uh, African Americans and to the and to raising African Americans to uh, ultimately to a, a form of political um, I won't say equality but polit political embrace sufficient that in his final speech which is a kind of civil rights speech in well, April of 1865 he says he wants to extend the vote to those African Americans who have fought as effectively as citizens in the citizen army of the Union those, those, those black regiments there 200,000 blacks who fought for the Union uh, but he also wants um, to extend the vote to those in the South who are educated he's thinking particularly of course of uh, uh, of the free blacks in uh, in Louisiana but he's also thinking of, about um, the way in which over time one might embrace the black population uh, into into uh, into citizenship and of course it's uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth who hears that speech and says this means revolution this means racial revolution uh, and is then prompted to take the uh, the the action that he does in Fort Theatre uh, on the evening of the 14th of, of April so uh, yeah the war the war's purpose um, is rearticulated by Lincoln and he does so just find final point to make he does so because um, in, he, he, he does so with some confidence because he is so close to an understanding of what 
ordinary folk are thinking. He has these regular weekly, twice-weekly, um, what he calls public opinion bars, where the doors of the White House are open to anyone who wants to come to see him. Um, that's not the only means by which he takes the pulse of public opinion. But it means that Lincoln, Lincoln never gets too far ahead of, and he certainly doesn't get too far behind, um, the, the mainstream opinion of the, uh, of the Union. He sees his role as that of a pedagogue, as a teacher, and not as a demagogue, you play to the better angels of people's nature, not to the worst fears of people um, in, in the Union. Uh, and some, with some confidence, and certainly with some, and with some, but with some bravery too, he takes that line in April of 1865, which opens the door to a concept of citizenship, which in 1858 in Illinois uh, he had explicitly denied. Well, and, I don't end of at all equate Davis with Lincoln on that front. Davis never saw African Americans as equal. To him, the Declaration of Independence, as to most Southerners, when they said all men are created equal, it didn't include African Americans. And, and when the Davis pushed for emancipation for service, many Southerners opposed that. And when the war ended, there's no poll to tell you how white Southerners felt. Uh, yeah. But I dare say that the, the, the vast majority of white Southerners regretted the end of slavery. Uh, they didn't know what they were going to do with this massive black population that they had. Slavery had existed for over 200 years. And one thing you must remember that most people don't think about these days, at that time, over 90% of the African-American population lived in the slave states. There were yeah. very few African-Americans outside the slave states except in a place like New York City or Philadelphia. They were very, very few elsewhere. Uh, most Northern Ameri white Northern Americans had rarely seen an African-American, much been associated with them. So Southerners were terrified, very afraid of what was going to happen. And uh, our defeat uh, didn't mean that they all of a sudden said, well, gosh, you know, somehow we lost this war, which means we were wrong about race. I don't think very, very, many, very few of them ever thought that. What, what, what fascinates me is, is, is the, the, the commonality here, because while both of them have very different views about race, and yet what has what seems to me to be coming across here from both of you is that both of them play this very interesting role in terms of redefining this relationship. But that's the commonalities. While Lincoln moves in one direction and Davis moves in another, yeah. in the end, both of them share this, how over the course of the war, they're in this process of changing the relationship of the African-Americans, uh, slave and free, uh, to the country, the governments that they were leading and ultimately to those countries. And how it really does speak to while, as, as we've been, as you both have already made clear, that their leadership wasn't the key necessarily to the outcome of the war, they definitely play this enormous role in shaping what the country would look like at the end of it. I, I agree with that, Mark, um, indeed. And I, I think the key moment, uh, there are a number of key moments, but a key moment was when uh, in the 1st of January, 1863, Lincoln changes the terms of what had been the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation to the Emancipation Proclamation pro proper. And what he does in that is to drop all reference to colonization of the black population uh, uh, outside the United States. And what he does uh, is to embrace the concept of black troops, of black men fighting for for the Union. 
undoubtedly that's driven in part by the need for manpower um, for, for, for as many as, you know, in a voluntary system, largely the Union forces were voluntary, volunteers throughout the war. Um, but the, the, the awareness that there are blacks out there who want to fight is, is, a, is an element in his, in his change of position. But from that point onwards, blacks are then in a position where they can prove their, uh, their um, potential for citizenship. Um, and L- L- Lincoln, who was probably in Illinois, only ever known blacks in subservient positions as barbers and teamsters and so forth, is now in, 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 in Washington, A, encountering um, some sophisticated and educated um, African-American leaders, but he's also perceiving on the battlefield the valor, the bravery, the commitment, the dedication, uh, the sacrifice of uh, of African-Americans. And that doesn't remove entirely his ideas about, he goes on entertaining ideas about colonization, but he also sees that the this black population must have a place in post-war America, and it must be a very different place from the one that they've enjoyed or have not enjoyed uh, before 1861. Well, I don't disagree with that, but of course, where you would have absolutely ended up had he survived, one can't know, can one, Richard? No, no. We can't. And I, uh, of course, what he wanted and what the public would have supported is another matter. Um, uh, and indeed, uh, you know, he's, he would have tried out those ideas in, uh, in, in Louisiana. Um, but how far a, uh, a, an, an imposition of a, of, a, of, a, of a colorblind citizenship within the southern states would have lasted um, is another matter. We do know, we do know how, it, how, how, how short-lived it was under um, a, a, a different set of presidents. Uh, Lincoln, of course, had the, uh, would have brought to the post-war presidency uh, the kudos of having won a war, <laughs> Um, and indeed the, um, the, the support of a political party, the party of the administration, which um, Andrew Johnson never had. He would also um, have had a moral authority that Johnson never had. And indeed, of course, of course, yeah. Um, but that would only have lasted for as long as, uh, as, long as he was there. Or like, maybe it would have survived him. But to the extent that it depended on him, it would only have survived at most for a, another another three, four years, that's assuming that he had lived. And, um, and I, I guess one of the, one, one of the hu- human sides of the story that we've both been telling that I, is, is, is just worth contemplating is just what the war did for the health of both Davis and, and Lincoln, um, the extent to which they were ground down by the war, and the extent to which, in Lincoln's case, I wonder how well uh, he would have, how, how well he would have survived uh, into, or how, how far he would have survived into a second term. Uh, gentlemen, on that note, uh, sounds like a good place to end it. Uh, Bill Cooper, uh, Richard Cowardine, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedules to speak with us. I hope you both have a wonderful, uh, wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you.